Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. Thank you, ladies, for the wonderful ministry, and thank you, congregation. There's just something special about coming home and hearing our congregation sing. Such a blessing. Thank the Lord. Gospel of John, the 19th chapter. It's a chapter to which we enter reverently, for this chapter contains John's record of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one introduced in the first chapter of the Gospel of John as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. John writes, you'll remember, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing, we would have life through His name. It's been said that the Gospel of John is the world's greatest gospel tract. This is a letter written filled with good news, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, how that He was buried, how that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. If you're not sure of your eternal home, there's no better book ever written to challenge you and bring you to know Jesus Christ as Savior than the Gospel of John. After all, it's a gospel written to the world. And this morning, we begin our reading in the 30th verse of John chapter 19. I'd like to bring a message this morning that I've entitled, Gifts Given at the Grave. Gifts Given at the Grave. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and the other which was crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. Forthwith there came out blood and water, He that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith is true, that you might believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture would be fulfilled, a bone of him should not be broken. And again another Scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore... And took the body of Jesus. Let's ask the Lord to bless as we look into his word. Father, on this morning that has been given to singing your praises, we find the motivation for that praise as we read our text this morning and we're reminded of the old rugged cross on which the prince of glory died. Lord, I pray today that you'd help us to approach this scene, though familiar, with care, with reverence, with appreciation with joy and with motivation to serve you better. Lord, may we come to this text this morning and see the one who is high and lifted up so that he might draw all men unto himself. And Father, we pray if there's anyone in this room today who's never come to Christ as Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. And for each one, followers of Christ, Lord, that today we'd be challenged to live for you with all of our heart. 
In Christ's name we pray, amen. Ever since Cain killed Abel, men and women have been gathering around graves to mourn. In 1965, Sir Winston Churchill died. 300,000 people passed by his coffin in respect. 3,000 mourners carefully filled St. Paul's Cathedral, and another 350 million people watched on television the funeral service of Sir Winston Churchill. When Pope John Paul died in April of 2005, three million people passed by his body in St. Peter's Basilica. Over 130 leaders from around the world gathered together for his funeral. Five million people filled the streets of Rome, and billions of people watched on television. Queen Elizabeth died September 8, 2022. 750,000 people filed past her coffin. On her coffin was a crown. It was embedded with 3,000 stones. There were 2,868 diamonds, 273 pearls, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 5 rubies. Her funeral service was the most widely watched television event in the history of television broadcasting. 4.1 billion people tuned in to see the Queen's funeral. Erling Olson was a lay speaker and a radio minister broadcasting out of Philadelphia into the Philadelphia and New York City metro areas back in the 1930s and the 1940s. Erling Olson once said, I've heard thousands of sermons. I've given more than a thousand myself. Yet in all that time, I've never heard or preached a message devoted to the funeral service of Jesus. We've opened our Bibles this morning to John 19. I'd like to invite you to consider the funeral service of Jesus. There were few in attendance. After all, his disciples had fled. There was very little time for fanfare. It was, after all, a Sabbath, a high Sabbath. There'd be no choir assembled. There'd be no eloquent eulogy. There'd be no solemn parade. There'd be no mourners, really, for they all fled, and it was, after all, the Sabbath. Follow along, please, as I begin our reading in John 19, verse 38. We read these words. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. There came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. This is the record of humanity's most significant burial. The body being buried had been conceived by the Holy Ghost. The house that is now being interred had been the mortal home of immortality. It had been the place where deity had resided. The body now being sealed in this tomb, sealed in a tomb, had demonstrated mastery over leprosy, over sickness, 
over the sea, and even over death. Our Lord's lifeless body is carried into this tomb, the body that carried our sin debt to the cross and nailed it there is now being interred. As we approach the grave of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, we ought to be giving careful attention because after all, Joseph and Nicodemus, the attendants of this burial, were giving very careful attention. These two men are giving really gifts to the Lord in his burial. They are, are, for all intents and purposes, his only pallbearers, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. But they gave to to the Lord some precious gifts that day. After all, Jesus gave everything. Shouldn't we give something? I want to hold them up as an example today. Jesus gave everything. Shouldn't we give something? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would say, absolutely. They would say we should give our open allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We should give our open allegiance. Notice in verse 38 that Joseph is called a secret disciple. He had not identified openly with Jesus during Jesus' life. But now in Jesus' death, he is identifying openly with the Lord. And then there's Nicodemus introduced to us there in verse 39, the same one who was introduced to us in John chapter 3, the one who came to Jesus by night, lest he be seen. Now these two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, are emerging from the shadows to stand as loyal disciples and to inter the blessed body of our Lord. Folks, Their fear has become faith. Their bashfulness has become boldness. They have seen the sacrifice of his death. And because of the sacrifice of his death, because he gave everything, they recognized that they too should give something to him. Genuine discipleship begins when we're willing to declare our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 says in verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Joseph and Nicodemus are demonstrating their open allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see them demonstrating that open allegiance, I have two questions I want us to ask as we look in this text. The first question is this, what was it that kept these men silent when the Lord was was speaking? When Jesus was speaking, after all, they hid in the shadows. What kept them silent when Jesus was speaking? And the Holy Spirit, I believe, provides the answer in the text to which we've turned. These men, after all, were religious men. Luke chapter 23 introduces us to Joseph of Arimathea and tells us that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, that august body of 70 who gathered together to represent the nation of Israel in all things, both civil and religious. Joseph of Arimathea was a high-ranking religious man. And Nicodemus was introduced to us in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is called in John chapter 3 the teacher in Israel. A very well-known rabbi, this Nicodemus. And while Jesus was alive, Joseph and Nicodemus lurk in the shadows. But now Jesus is speaking no longer. 
and they're speaking up. They had hidden behind their religious robes. People had thought them to be ever so pious, but they had never expressed their personal faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord until they came to the cross. Friends, this same thing happens today, doesn't it? The world is filled, you see, with people who are willing to talk about religion, but not willing to profess their open allegiance in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. There are those who like to study catechisms, who like to consider biblical conversations, but when it comes to confessing their dependence upon the one who is alone, the way, the truth, and the life, not so much there. So let me ask you a question. Are you comfortable with your religion, but uncomfortable allowing others to know that Jesus Christ is your personal Lord and Savior? Uncomfortable expressing your open allegiance to the one who died in your place? These men were religious men. These men were wealthy men. Matthew chapter 27 introduces us in verse 57 to Joseph of Arimathea, telling us specifically that he was a wealthy man, for the Word of God says, and when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who himself was a disciple of Jesus. The Mishnah, one of the ancient writings of the Jews, tells us that Nicodemus was the third wealthiest man in all of Jerusalem in his lifetime. The only people wealthier were Annas, the former high priest, and Caiaphas, the present high priest, and then Nicodemus. Why is it hard for wealthy people to express their open allegiance to Jesus? Well, let's be honest, sometimes their thoughts go like this, I could lose popularity. I could lose a position. I could lose a promotion. I don't want to be out there about my faith. Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into heaven. They were religious men. They were wealthy men. They were influential men. In verse 38, we read that they were influential enough that they had access to Pilate, the governor of all Judea. They approached Pilate asking for the body of Jesus. Pilate knew that Jesus' ministry was filled with controversy. These men to come before Pilate after he has executed the Savior and after he has washed his hands of the matter are demonstrating that they're influential men. After all, Mark 15 calls Joseph an honorable counselor. Joseph and Nicodemus had great status in the community. And great status in the community can sometimes rob a person from the joy of having a great relationship with Jesus. They opened up with their allegiance now, these religious men, these wealthy men, these influential men. And they set an example for all of us who are here because after all, Jesus had given everything for them. They just had to give something for him. I have a question to ask you today. Are you willingly identifying with Jesus? <laughs> Do the people at your workplace know that you're a Christian? Do your neighbors know that Jesus is your Savior? He gave everything. Will you give your open allegiance for him? Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. 
But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. There are some in this room this morning, and you know that others believe you to be a Christian. Perhaps you made a childhood profession, and people have counted on that, but you know in your heart of hearts that you've never really trusted in Christ, and now you weigh the options. Will I keep the position that I have and the respect that I have and have folks assume about me, or will I stand up and realize, Jesus gave everything for me. I should give something for him. I should give my open allegiance. I should place my allegiance in Jesus Christ and receive the free gift of salvation that only he can give before it's everlastingly too late. Joseph and Nicodemus came to understand that there is no salvation in any other, neither is there salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's a second question we need to ask as we look at this text. What is it that now causes these men to speak out when Jesus has become silent? I think we find the answer in the text. They considered the cross. That morning, they'd heard the voice of the Savior from the cross when Jesus had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They'd heard the pleasant voice of Jesus from the cross when he said to that thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. They'd seen the love of the Lord toward his mother when he said, Mother, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. How he cared for others. They listened to his words in the afternoon as he hung there on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They'd heard him as he spoke out, saying, I thirst. They'd heard him say, it is finished. Finally, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And they considered what they saw at the cross as it paralleled what God's word had said would happen. These were students of the Old Testament. They knew that Psalm 22 said that they would pierce his hands and his feet. They knew that the Word of God said that he would cry out, I thirst, and that he would be given, according to Psalm 69, gall and vinegar to drink. They knew that Isaiah 53 predicted that he'd be stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. They knew that he would be bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace would be upon him. They even knew that Exodus chapter 12 said that no Passover lamb could have any bone broken. And Jesus was with the Father even when they came by to break the bones of the others on the cross. They understood that this was the one who had been prophesied, the only Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. One who gave everything now motivated them to give something. What will you give to Jesus who gave everything for you? Will you give your open allegiance? How convicted we ought to be, dear friends. When we consider the cross, Jesus with his arms open wide in love, taking our shame, taking our guilt, And yet sometimes we find it difficult to confess our allegiance to him. May God help us. When Pope John Paul II died, there were 35,000 news stories immediately published. 22,000 blogs flew off the internet. At that time, that was one-fifth of the internet traffic. How did that happen? Well, 
There were comments by presidents and comments by kings and comments by religious leaders after all. Communication is expected when figures of notoriety and beloved figures die. The Apostle Paul would say in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15, now this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. Did you know that Isaiah 53 asked a question in verse 8 that we need to be answering this morning? It asked this question, now who will declare his generation? Will you answer, I will? Will you give Jesus your open allegiance? Joseph and Nicodemus provide a model for the ages. They gave their open allegiance to Jesus. They gave something else. They gave the material wealth. In verse 39 of John 19, we read that Nicodemus brought 100 pounds of myrrh and aloes. There are all kinds of estimates as to how much weight that was and how much wealth that cost Nicodemus to purchase this great amount. The International Standard Biblical Encyclopedia says such an immense quantity must certainly have been purchased at an extremely expensive cost. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 40, we discover that Joseph and Nicodemus took Jesus and they wrapped his body in linen. Mark chapter 15 tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was the one who bought that linen, that special cloth, to weave around the body of Jesus. The generosity of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea is clearly on display as a model for us to carefully consider at the funeral service of our Savior. They understood that since Jesus had given everything, they needed to give something. So they brought thoughtful gifts. Thoughtful gifts. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 23 says that myrrh was part of the oil that was placed upon the head of the high priest. Jesus is our great heavenly high priest. Song of Solomon 4 and verse 14, as well as Proverbs 7 and verse 17, tells us that aloes was part of the perfume known to be the perfume of love. And linen, of course, that was the only garment that the priest would ever use when they walked in the courts of the temple. The 45th Psalm says of the Messiah, the scepter of thy kingdom is a righteous scepter. Thou art anointed with the oil of gladness. All thy garments smell of myrrh and of aloes out of the ivory palace. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea thought through what they would give to the Lord and they brought significant gifts to demonstrate their love and to demonstrate his position as the great high priest of our faith. They brought timely gifts. Jesus, after all, was a visitor in Jerusalem. Though Jerusalem will one day be the place of his eternal home and the place where he rules and reigns from the throne of his father David, Jesus' home had been in the impoverished village of Nazareth. But his death would be in Jerusalem, outside the walls. He had no grave there. He had no insurance policy to provide for him at his passing. But he had friends God the Father had given his promise that he would supply all of his needs, and so it was that Joseph of Arimathea would give up his grave for Jesus. And Joseph and Nicodemus would give him a proper burial. When Aveta Perón died in Argentina way back in 1952, her body would lie in state for 12 days. 1.5 million yellow roses would be brought to her funeral. Stocks from the Andes Mountains, white carnations, orchids, pea pods from 
Japan and chrysanthemums, all these things to make it a special place when she died. Did you know that it's estimated that some 60 million flowers were brought to Buckingham Palace when Queen Elizabeth died? Friend, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. With the sacrifice of Jesus, God promised to freely give us all things richly to enjoy. How dare we hold back? <laughs> but we do. We hold back in our generosity, we hold back in our giving because we fail to remember that He gave everything. Surely I can give something. Joseph and Nicodemus provide a model. They gave their open allegiance, they gave the material wealth, they gave their physical energies in service for the Lord. Verse 40 says, they took the body of Jesus. I think to appreciate this text, we have to appreciate something of the men who are here in this text. We need to understand that these were elderly men, that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, and one did not enter into the Sanhedrin as a young man. Nicodemus had taken some of his life to become the great teacher of Israel and more of his life to become the third wealthiest man in all of Jerusalem. These were wealthy men. These were elderly men. These were significant men, and carrying the body of Jesus to the place of his burial would be a very difficult task. Jerusalem, after all, is not flatland. It's built upon a hill. It's filled with hills and rocks and valleys. It would require tremendous exertion for these two elderly men to lift the body of the one who had become strong in the carpenter's shop, who had labored physically, who was in his prime. You know, there's a lot to learn from the example of Joseph and Nicodemus. These men were willing to spend and be spent for the one who was spent for them. When I was in elementary school, I admired a big, strong man who attended our church. His name was Daniel Kahn. I'll never forget him. He came to do some work in our home one day, and he picked up a jackhammer. That was impressive. And he put it into a wall, and he jackhammered horizontally into the wall. He was a big man. I was not the only one impressed by the life of Daniel Kahn in his book, The Vanishing Ministry by Woodrow Kroll. Woodrow Kroll talks about Daniel Kahn. He says, Mr. Kahn was always there. He worked, after all, for 40 years at a Bible college, making sure the grounds and everything were in order for the students to be able to study without distraction. And Woodrow Kroll says, Mr. Kahn was always there repairing boilers, planting flowers, raking leaves, whatever it took. In the last summer of his life, he planted 3,000 marigolds on the campus plus other flowers. One night, says Kroll, I was awakened at three in the morning in my campus home by the sound of running water. I bounded out of bed to see if a faucet was leaking in the kitchen or in the bathroom. None was. I could still hear water running, and after an unsuccessful search through all the house, Kroll continues, I heard a noise outside. So going to the window, I saw Mr. Kahn watering the flowers, tulips as I remember. I said, what's the matter? Can't you sleep? Sure, I can sleep, he responded, but this is the best time to water these flowers. He was watering flowers at 3 o'clock in the morning. Initially, says Kroll, I thought he was crazy. 
But that's not crazy, that's commitment. He understood that he was serving the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He understood he was serving the one who had given up everything so he could at least give something. Listen, if you love the Savior, if you're moved by his death and his burial and his resurrection, you should be willing to get up a little bit early to read your Bible. You should be willing to stay up a little late to have a time of prayer. You should be willing to say, it's the Lord's day. I know where I need to be. You should be willing, if you're motivated by the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Savior, to expend yourself for the one who gave everything for you. Hey, there are two more gifts that I want you to see these men giving. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Let's consider them quickly. They gave up their comfort zones. They gave up their comfort zones. Look again at verse 38. I'm sorry, verse 28. We read, after this, Jesus knowing... After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture would be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. I'm sorry, I should go back to chapter 18, verse 28. I'll blame that one on jet lag. (laughs) Chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas under the hall of judgment. It was early. They themselves, speaking of the religious leaders, went not into the judgment hall. Why? lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Participation in the Passover required purity. There were ceremonial baths that needed to be taken. There were places that one could not enter specifically. There was no entrance into a Gentile home, let alone entrance into Pilate's Hall of Judgment. Entrance into such a place, every Jew knew, would cause them to be forbidden to take the Passover. In fact, you've heard of whitewashed sepulchers. They, they put whitewash on the sepulchers or the graves throughout Israel so that when walking to the feast, no one would walk upon the graves and come in such close contact with dead bodies or even bones as to be ceremonially defiled. Nicodemus and Joseph of Marimathea well knew these qualifications for participating in the Passover. And yet in chapter 19, verse 40, we read that these men moved beyond their comfort zone. They took the body of Jesus and wound that body, that lifeless, flaccid body of the Lord Jesus Christ that had been once so full of life and power. They wound that body. They cleansed that body. They anointed that body. And they put his body in the tomb. We can't even begin to imagine the horror of what they experienced. Not just the washing of the blood of the Savior and anointing his body and hastily wrapping it in linen, but knowing all the while that they would not this evening be participating in the Passover. These men who had always participated in the Passover are going beyond their comfort zone because of their love for the Lord. What was it that caused them to do this terrible work? They knew that God had commended his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ had died for us. This is likely the very first time in their lives that they would ever not participate in the Passover. But they understood something that 1 Corinthians reminds us of. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 we read that Christ is our Passover, for he is sacrificed for us. 
How many Christians are unwilling to get out of their comfort zones? We live in a comfort-oriented culture, but culture's always been that way. But there are those who will leave their comfort zones when they fall in love with the sacrifice of the Savior and understand what he gave for us. When David Livingston was a missionary in Africa, he actually received a letter from his mission agency, and the letter said, we'd like to send some more missionaries your way. Are there any roads that we can describe to them that they can find their way to you? And David Livingston wrote back to the mission agency, and he said, if they need roads, don't send them. Send me missionaries that need no roads. He wanted people, the Savior wants people, who will give up their comfort zone. How many times have you been invited to participate in the ministry? Hey, would you help out with this? Eh, I've never done that before. Hey, can you serve in this capacity? Yeah, you know, I'm just not really gifted in that way. The example of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus was a willingness to move beyond comfort zone and to give one more gift. I want you to see it. They gave their personal legacies. What do you mean, Pastor Phelps? Verse 41, now the place where he was crucified, in that place there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid. Now Matthew chapter 27 tells us that this sepulcher was actually owned by Joseph of Arimathea. And to appreciate what's happening here, you have to understand a little bit of the Middle Eastern customs when it came to funerals and burials, burials in particular. Joseph of Arimathea had put a lot of thought into the tomb that he had constructed for himself. Isaiah 53 in verse 9 had prophesied that Jesus would make his grave with the, with the rich in his death. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. And because he was a wealthy man, he would have had his tomb carved into a stone, hand-carved with a chisel, into the side of a hill, into a stone. It would have been constructed in an unusual way. There would have been an anteroom or the first room that you enter into large enough for several family members to gather. You'd have to stoop low to go through the stone place where it would have been rolled away, and then you'd go into that opening room, and you'd see as you looked over, a couple of beds. Sometimes the beds would simply be chiseled out of stone. Sometimes there would be on top of the stone something called a sarcophagus, but either the bed or the sarcophagus would do the same work. Sarcophagus means a place in which bodies are put to de decompose. Sarx means flesh, and sarcophagus means a flesh eater. A year after the burial, the Jewish families would come back, and then the bones were there. And so they would take the bones, and they would measure the longest bone on the human body, the femur bone, and after they measured that bone, they would go to someone who would carve a box called an ossuary, and all the bones of the person who had died would be placed carefully in the ossuary box, and then the ossuary box would be placed on a shelf in the tomb. Joseph had planned all this so that when he had died, and he was now growing old, his family could come and remember him. That his sons could be gathered to their father, as the Old Testament says. And that family member after family member could be gathered there in this tomb. That's why the tomb had been chiseled. It hadn't been chiseled for Jesus. But when Jesus died, Joseph of Arimathea said, I don't need this tomb any longer. He needs it. He gave up his personal legacy. He said, don't let my family member come to remember me here. 
When they remember me, I want them to remember him. When they think of me, I want them to think of Jesus. I don't want my family members remembering me and not seeing him. So they gave up their personal legacies. You see, the gospel that we preach is Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. He was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, believing that he died in their place, can be saved. Joseph and Nicodemus had gazed upon Jesus as he died upon that cross. They understood the significance of his death for themselves. They understood that he died in their place, taking their sin. They understood that this was a significant moment, one that all of the Old Testament had predicted and John had predicted when he said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When they considered the cross of Calvary and what Jesus had done for them, they gave their open allegiance. They gave their material wealth. They gave their physical energy. They gave their comfort zone. They gave their legacy. After all, he had given everything. They wanted to give something. Before the Apostle Paul ever wrote, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, they were living it. Having seen the grave this morning, the question that we need to ask, are you satisfied with what you're giving the Lord? Are you satisfied with how you're living for the Lord? The songwriter said, show me the tomb where thou hast laid, tenderly mourned and wept, angels in robes of light arrayed, guarded thee whilst thou slept. Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.